Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. So thank you guys for being here. Welcome back to track one. And I apologize if we sound a little rushed. We're just a few minutes behind, so we want to make sure we give these guys plenty of time. This session, just so that you know, is presented by IDEA Biosciences. And, um, oh snap, now I'm blanking on your name. Our IDEA representative, um, say it one more time. Kelly. Kelly in the back. She's, oh, I guess she's right in the middle of the back. She's going to be here at the IDEA table if you're here in person. Feel free to check in with her, chat with her. She's wonderful. I've been talking with her off and on the last couple of days. Um, But IDEA Biosciences, just so you know a little more about them if you haven't heard of them. We're going to scroll down first. Um, IDEA is a precision medicine oncology company with deep research development, expertise in synthetic lethality. We are passionately, or they are passionately pursuing the discovery and development of targeted therapeutics for patient populations using molecular diagnosis, or molecular diagnostics. Sorry, guys. Uh, IDEA has a world-class team of leading scientists and advisors with extensive knowledge and expertise in cancer biology, small molecular drug discovery, translational biology, and clinical development. So thank you again to IDEA for sponsoring and presenting this session. Uh, Our speakers. So, like I said... We're going to be hearing from Dr. Stacy and Dr. Batia and Dr. Brechbiel. I'm saying that right, right? Yes, okay. Oh, there's a lot of names, guys. So um, these guys, I'm going to introduce them and bring them up on stage. Dr. Stacy, you guys know him from um, the beginning of the session and all day. He's been here. He's our wonderful host, and he is an ophthalmologist at the Eye Institute at UW, and uh, he's, a, or no, an eye institute at Harborview and a UW professor, assistant professor of ophthalmology. Sorry, I'm just like botching this. Uh, Dr. Batia is a medical oncologist at Fred Hutch Cancer Center who specializes in the care of patients with advanced skin cancers that generally require systemic surveillance and therapies. And Dr. Brechbiel is a clinical psychologist at Fred Hutch Cancer Center, and she's here to talk to us about, like, what happens to our brains when we get this diagnosis. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring up our speakers. You guys are welcome to take a seat on stage, grab a mic. Just make sure to eat the mic. Let's give them a round of applause so they don't feel awkward. Okay, we can take the Stacy slides first. Perfect. Um, well, you've heard a lot from me today. This is the last, t- no, it's not. I'm going to come up at the very end again, so almost the last time. Um, this session is going to be about prognosis. So I'm just going to give a brief overview about what we know about prognosis, and then Dr. Bhatti is going to talk to us a little bit about what we do with the information, and then Dr. Breckbeel will talk to us about how we deal with the information. Um, What does prognosis mean, first of all? What does that word mean? What we're talking about when we say prognosis is the risks associated with the cancer at the time of diagnosis. And we usually refer to the risks to the rest of the body, not so much the eye. The risk to the eye actually is mostly uh, determined based on the radiation and not the tumor itself. So the risks, when we say risks in the future, we're mostly talking about the rest of the eye. I'm sorry, the rest of the body. There's a couple of ways that we can determine the risk to the rest of the body or the prognosis. One of those ways is something we call clinical staging, and that's based on the shape and the location of the tumor inside of the eye. The other way, in general terms, is a molecular way, where we take a sampling and we test samples from the the melanoma to help us determine how risky it is to the rest of the body. So we're going to talk about each of these and what we do when we have the information and when we don't have the information. Uh, There are a few ways to stage a tumor clinically. One of the most widely accepted ways is through the American Joint Committee on Cancer staging system. 
often referred to as the AJCC. Um, most of your physicians are probably using this system or some sort of a similar system uh, with similar criteria. You may have heard of the TNM classification. That refers to the tumor, the node, and the metastasis of the cancer in the body. We're gonna talk just now just about the T section, which is the tumor score. So how do we determine um, what the risk is of a ocular or uveal melanoma based on how it looks inside of the eye? There are a couple of characteristics that come into play. The first is the size. Um, when we talked about how to diagnose a melanoma, we talked about the thickness, and that's an important um, modifying factor here. But also the diameter of the tumor comes into play. So the tumor diameter and the tumor thickness are two important criteria that help us determine if this is a lower risk T-score or a higher risk T-score. Um, other things that come into play are location. So we talked about the three main locations of a uveal melanoma being the iris, the ciliary body, or the choroid. The iris is actually quite distinct from the other two and has its own clinical staging system because it's quite low risk. The ciliary body is a little bit more risky and so it bumps up the score inside of the AJCC clinical scoring um, criteria. And that's it. So location, size, and whether, I guess the only other thing is whether or not the, the melanoma appears to be retained within the eyeball or if it shows any sign of growing outside of the eyeball. And with those bits of information, we can come up with a stage of the tumor. Now, when you hear people talk about, I have stage four cancer, what they're referring to is actually a separate step along this path. When someone says they have stage four cancer, they're not referring to how big the tumor is or where the tumor is. They're saying that their tumor has spread or has metastasized to other parts of the body. When we're talking about the T-score, what we're talking about is how big the tumor is before there's any sign of spread. And that puts us into a category of either stage one, stage two, or stage three, based on the size only of the tumor. And we know that based on that size, the risk of spread in the future to the rest of the body goes up. What is molecular diagnosis or molecular prognosis? So we've talked about the clinical size and the clinical stage. The other way that we can figure this out is with molecular studies. There are a number of things that we can find and look for inside of the tumor that can tell us whether or not the tumor has a higher risk of spread or not. There's a lot of research that goes into this and a lot of biology. Um, we talked at the very beginning of the day about mutations, the driver mutations that help a melanoma grow and help a melanoma spread. Many of those mutations we know. We don't know all of them, but we know many of them and we can test for them. You can see here three ways that we can test a melanoma in the eye. One is with DNA, looking specifically for the genes, for the DNA changes inside of that tumor. The second is RNA, or what the tumor is expressing, what kind of proteins it's making, what kind of things the DNA is actually producing. And the third way is to actually look at the chromosomes inside of the cell. All of these are currently used in various different centers across uh, this country and across uh, the world. Um, I won't go into the DNA genes. Um, Many of you have heard of uh, the Castle Biosciences test. That is an RNA test. Um, and we talk about PRAME sometimes too. These are expression tests, but they are all determined based on a biopsy of the melanoma. So how do we obtain that biopsy? Um, in my first talk, I said we don't obtain biopsies. It's not entirely true. We often don't obtain biopsies for diagnosis though sometimes we can. When we're obtaining a sample of the melanoma, it's not for diagnosis, but it's for prognosis. So when we're looking at the cells inside of a melanoma, we often may not be able to determine if the actual cell is a melanoma. 
but we can determine that if it is a melanoma and it harbors these mutations, is it higher or lower risk? We obtain these biopsies in two ways. If a tumor is in the front of the eye, we place a needle through the wall of the eye, just barely into the melanoma, and we pull out a few cells. These needles are tiny. They're 25 or 27 gauge needles. They're very, very small. And we pull out just a few cells, and we test those cells. If the, if the tumor is in the back of the eye, we then have to put the needle all the way through the eye, and with some imaging systems, we watch the needle as it goes into the tumor, and then we pull out cells while the needle is in the tumor. And we're only pulling out a few cells, and we only need a few cells because what we're looking at is not how the cells look under the microscope, but we're actually looking at the contents inside of the cells. What do we do with this information? Well, Dr. Bhatia is going to talk to us about this. What do we do with high and low risk information? Um, I just want to end, I'm just painting the picture here, but I want to end with just a couple of thoughts. I've, I've given this talk in a number, number of different um, patient conferences, and this is a topic that is talked about very frequently in the interwebs. I don't know where, because I'm not there and I'm not invited, but I know that it's discussed frequently because many patients have a lot of questions. Um, here's what I want to say. We can do whatever we need to do with whatever information we have. Having more information is great. Sometimes we can't get it, and sometimes you weren't offered it, and that's okay. We can still do whatever we need to do. Um, if you did not get a biopsy and you were treated five or six years ago, that causes people a lot of stress because we hear a lot of talk about these biopsies. I'm here to tell you that's okay. We can do whatever we need to do. Dr. Bhatia can figure this out without a biopsy. Now, when a new patient comes in, is it good to have that information? Yes, it's absolutely helpful, but it is not necessary. Um, so um, I don't want anybody to leave here being stressed that you didn't get a biopsy and you were treated years ago. It's okay. Um, there are various issues with the biopsy idea, right? We're taking just a couple of cells out of a very large melanoma. It's entirely possible that we're not actually sampling the thing that we want to sample. Maybe we sample a part of the melanoma that's not as dangerous as another part. So these biopsies, they're not perfect. They're just information. We take the information that we have and we make decisions based on that information, but they are not perfect information. And I think it's also important to remember, and you'll probably hear from the other doctors, having high-risk criteria or high-risk um, melanoma does not mean that it will spread. It means that it is higher risk of spreading in the same way that if you have low risk, it doesn't mean that it absolutely will not spread. It's just information. It's not a crystal ball. It doesn't give us everything. Um, in our practice, we use both of these criteria together, the clinical stage based on the tumor size and location and the molecular prognosis. Sometimes the information doesn't match. Sometimes you have a big tumor and the molecular prognosis looks pretty benign. Sometimes you have a small tumor and the molecular prognosis looks really dangerous. And you have to weigh that information because not all class two tumors are the same. Some of them are large, some of them are small, and they act differently. Um, so with that, I will thank you and I will turn the time over to Dr. Bhatia who will explain what we do with all of this information. Andrew? Well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Dr. Stacy for organizing it, uh, this conference, and uh, a lot of hard work uh, went behind the scenes. Uh, thanks to Melody, Hannah, and many others at CureSight, and uh, it's great to see you all this beautiful Seattle afternoon. So just like it happens in our clinic, mostly uh, folks who get diagnosed with this disease, they would see Dr. Stacy first, and he would be explaining all that he just did. And then a concert will be made, uh, either to radiation oncology, if people are going to get radiation. And after that, they will eventually come to our medical oncology clinic to talk about what does this diagnosis mean for a person's overall health? And uh, um, where do we go from here? How do we monitor for the possibility of disease coming back and so on? So I'm just gonna kind of give you a summary of uh, how we think about it at our end 
and uh, importantly, also some of uh, familiar faces. So you've probably heard me do this kind of uh, counseling in the clinic as well. So let's see. So again, the goals of my talk today are kind of just at a very high level, discuss the prognosis of this disease, discuss principles of surveillance. Obviously, everybody's situation is unique, and uh, uh, you know, the plan of surveillance for each situation is going to be very individualized. Uh, but there are some principles that guide us in that decision making, and I'm going to kind of uh, touch on those today. And then uh, share our own surveillance strategy. Dr. Stacy mentioned there's a lot of uh, uh, you know, information on the internet. Some folks are getting scans done every three months. So when I talk to somebody about getting scans done, like, let's say every six months or once a year, uh, it can be very anxiety provo provoking that how come I am not getting something done more frequently or, so I, I wanna kind of, I think hopefully by the end of this talk, I can provide you some reassurance as Dr. Stacy also did, um, that there's no right or wrong answer here. Um, and you know, fortunately most of uh, uh, our strategies that, that we are employing in our clinic I have not seen any particular harm done to any patients. So that kind of gives me more belief in sharing our own strategy, uh, and hopefully uh, you'll, you'll find it reassuring as well. So I'm gonna be focusing mostly on radiologic surveillance for the possibility of the cancer spreading beyond the eye. Dr. Stacy sees uh, uh, patients every three to six months, depending on the situation, keeping a close eye on the tumor itself in the eye. Uh, but then the possibility of some of those uh, cancer cells spreading from the eye to the rest of the body, and uh, how do we do surveillance for that is the focus of my talk today. So the, the biggest question is whether to do surveillance at all, and uh, how do we think about that? So if there is a chance of a bad problem brewing in the body, if we know about it sooner, it's kind of like delivering bad news sooner. Now, there is, it is it, in some ways, it can be meaningful if we can do something about that bad news, and I think we can, but the, the, the utility of surveillance has to be absolutely tied into what will we do if we do discover some bad news. Now, the fine line, you know, if you learn about a bad news that hasn't quite become that bad, there's all this unnecessary anxiety that comes into the situation. Uh, oh, I have, I'm at super high risk of the cancer coming back. But as Dr. Stacy said, even the highest risk tumors don't necessarily have to come back. But just knowing about that can actually change a person's life. Um, so I, I think we have to kind of strike the right balance between wanting to know um, and uh, perhaps some people choose not to know. Um, but we have to also ask, our, ask a question, if we know sooner, can we do something that is actually gonna meaningfully change a person's overall outcome? So the impact of early detection on survival is a big question when it comes to surveillance. And I, I think at this time, I feel like we are not quite there where surveillance actually makes that big of a difference. So that is again, you know, tied to, if we do discover metastatic disease, we need much better treatment options than we have currently. And uh, once we have those options, the utility of surveillance, early detection, is gonna go up so much. But until that happens, the way I think about it is, it may not happen right now, but five years from now, hopefully the standard of care metastatic disease will be markedly improved. And if I start doing surveillance today on all my patients, I give them a chance of benefiting from that. But at this time today, I don't think we add that much by doing more and more aggressive surveillance. So I, I kind of want to emphasize that principle. Now there's a lot of psychological impact of surveillance. Uh, obviously, there's this reassurance that I am doing what I can, uh, what is in my control. And every time we get a scan, there's anxiety around the scan. What if it shows metastases? But if it doesn't show metastases, 
there is this reassurance that, okay, I'm doing okay. And until my next scan in a year from now, if I start having some pain in my right upper quadrant, which could be, you know, liver metastases potentially, but most likely something else, some heartburn or, you know, gas or something, you can, you can actually draw comfort in the fact that I just had my MRI two months back. There was nothing seen there. So it probably is not something serious. That reassurance is actually very, very powerful. Um, now, there's a real cost to doing surveillance. There's the obvious financial cost of ordering these expensive MRIs and so on. You know, most of the times these are covered by insurance, but, uh, you know, for if somebody was self-paid, this is a big cost. Um, there's always the risk of false positives. We see something. Then we are forced to do more procedures, or sometimes we can't do a procedure. It leads to this anxiety over the next several months until we do the next MRI. So we have to kind of keep that in mind as well. And in this particular field at this time, emphasize again that more is not necessarily better. But at the end of it, we use all the information and we have to make a decision which is personalized for each patient's situation, their goals, their overall health uh, condition, their life expectancy, and so on. So when to do surveillance, uh, we kind of keep in mind how much is the risk of recurrence? Is, is somebody at low risk or somebody at high risk? And uh, uh, this is uh, uh, probably one of the uh, biggest databases that actually guides my practice, uh, more than 7,000 patients. And this is outcomes in terms of metastases, the chance of developing metastases after the diagnosis. And on the, uh, right hand, uh, on the left hand side, you can see the stage. So stage one is the smallest possible tumor. And I kind of want to emphasize um, just that for the purposes of our discussion. So if you look at the risk of metastases for stage one, at one year, 0.25%, three years, 2%, five years, 5%. In most cancers, we stop our surveillance at five years. People would say in skin melanoma, you know, we'll be doing surveillance for five years, and if somebody had, does not have a recurrence, we would be talking about, okay, you just go to your dermatologist and do some skin surveillance. But ocular melanoma is a different beast. There is the slow and steady rate of recurrence that almost never stops. So if you look at now 10 years, 11%, 15 years, 15%, 20 years, 20%. So 20% chance of somebody developing metastases over the next 20 years. Now, let's, let's think about it a little bit. You know, the flip side of it is 80% chance that nothing bad is gonna happen in the next 20 years. And I, I kind of want people to remind themselves of that, not drive their life crazy by thinking about the bad case scenarios, but there's actually good hope that the situation has been addressed and the person is possibly cured. Um, for that 20% chance though, the question comes up, you know, if there is that risk, do we wanna kind of find out about it sooner? And that is where I, I think we have to make individualized decisions based on a person's health. If somebody is 90 years old, that probably is not going to be that helpful in their overall uh, uh, life expectancy and goals of care. But if somebody is 30 years old, they have 70 years ahead of life potentially. And even the 20% chance of developing a stage four life-threatening cancer becomes quite significant. So I think these numbers are important in guiding our uh, surveillance discussions. Dr. Bhatia, yes. I apologize. Um, I'm up down here. Will you do me a favor and hold the microphone in the middle? Right now you're holding on the antenna and it's affecting the, the audio quality just a bit. Okay. There you go. Is this better? That's better. Okay. And everybody can hear me, right? Okay. Um, so this kind of shows the risk of recurrence uh, in terms of metastatic disease over time. And you can see the blue color at the bottom, stage one. Again, there is the slow and steady rate of recurrence for you know as long as 20 years in this study. Um, uh, Dr. Stacy talked about gene expression profiling. So when we get castle biosciences on those biopsy, we get this information. If you look at the top category, class 1A, the percent metastasis free survival at three years is 98%, five years is 
so that looks pretty good, but does that mean we should not do surveillance in these folks? So I actually want to again bring us to that previous uh, data. For stage one, at five years, the chances of finding something are fairly low, so very similar to class 1A. But again, if we give it more time, the risk does increase. So I think part of the limitation that we have with some of these newer tests is we don't have that long-term follow-up um, of 20 years or so. So we kind of have to keep those limitations in mind when we discuss surveillance strategies. So the surveillance principle number one is I think all patients who get diagnosed with ocular melanoma should have a discussion like we are having today about overall prognosis and whether it makes sense to do radiologic surveillance. The final decision should be guided by patient preference. We have to partner with our patients, understand what their goals are, and their overall health and life expectancy. So we use various modalities for surveillance, and uh, I, I think you, uh, all of you probably know this by now, that liver is the most common site of metastases for this disease. So if you look at uh, the prevalence of organs which are involved with metastases when the disease has spread, you, you see liver is involved 90% of the times. The second most common is lung, 29% of the times. But almost always we see liver involvement um, and sometimes other organ involvement. So when it comes to surveillance, the one organ that we focus on is the liver. There are multiple ways of looking at the liver. We can do an ultrasound, we can do a CT scan. We can do just simple liver function testing labs um, and PET scans. So th there are all these different modalities. It turns out that MRI gives us the best images. Uh, it is one of the most sensitive tests. It gives us the best images, which we can also distinguish from other common conditions in the liver, like hemangiomas and cysts and so on. So our practice is that we prioritize a liver MRI and there's a special protocol called liver metastases protocol where people get contrast and images are taken at multiple different time points after contrast. And uh, it turns out uh, um, that uh, with this strategy, we are able to detect the cancer way before a patient would develop symptoms. And the other good thing about MRI is there's no radiation exposure. So now in addition to liver, we also kind of want to keep an eye on some of these other organs possibly. Now when we do an abdominal MRI, we are actually looking at many of those other organs already. But one thing we are missing is the chest and lung is a potential site of metastases. So for lungs, we can actually go do a CT chest, but we most commonly get the same or similar quality information from a simple chest x-ray. Now this is what a typical chest x-ray looks like. They shoot the radiation beam from the front and capture the images at the back, and then you see this overlay of the bones lying on the lung tissue. Now for this disease, we are not as interested in the bones. We are more interested, I guess, in the lung tissue. So what we have started doing uh, many years back, in, uh, and this is probably unique to our Fred Hutch Cancer Center, we do what we call dual energy chest x-ray, and I'll explain that in a second. So this is a chest x-ray on a patient who had kidney cancer, and there were some shadows. Uh, let's see. Okay, uh, let me go back. So there were some shadows that were not clearly visualized on this standard chest x-ray. If we do a dual energy x-ray, which means we shoot two different wavelengths, one is more for the lung tissue, the other one is more for the bones, we get much better images of the lung, and here you can see some, I, I don't have a pointer, but you can see some nodules uh, on the top, and I think there may be, yeah, there you go. So if we do this, we can improve the diagnosis. Um, and then similarly, this person had a shadow here, which was hard to tease out where exactly it is located, but with a dual energy x-ray, the second part of the x-ray is more for the bones, you can see that there was this lesion more in the bones. So this is something that we have used, and it, I think, spares our patients from the excessive radiation exposure from a CT chest. CT chest is also more expensive, takes more time. Chest X-ray is simple to schedule. You can walk in and walk out. So that's something that we have done. How am I doing on time? I 
think you are probably down to your last three to five minutes. Okay, perfect. So the surveillance principle too is MRI liver, whenever available, should be the preferred modality. But sometimes we run into issues, insurance company hasn't approved it. I wanna assure you, ultrasound is actually good enough. CT scan is good enough. MRI is a little better, but with the overall modalities, it's some, some battles are, you know, kind of very anxiety provoking and it's, it's hard when that happens, but it's not like ultrasound or CT are bad. It's just that yes, MRI is a little better and we wanna kind of use the best whenever we can. And then we use chest X-ray as we talked about. So the other big question that comes up is how long to continue surveillance for? So again, this is where this disease is quite unique and fascinating that it, it, there is this dormancy. The cancer cells have traveled from the eye, let's say to the liver, in those 20% of the patients. But they stay dormant for years and decades. They are there, they have already spread, but something in the body is able to keep them in check. The cancer cells are not growing, they are controlled by the body's mechanism. So that dormancy is good because many a times this cancer may, even if it has spread, it may never become a problem in a patient's life. However, the dormancy poses a problem at our end. When do we stop surveillance? Uh, most cancers, five years. This cancer, you know, we push it when we say 10 years. That's kind of our practice. But I, I, I think with knowing about the disease, we should do lifelong surveillance. Um, however, the kind of surveillance can vary over time as a person risk, a person's risk diminishes over time. Maybe we can move away from the expensive MRIs, just do simple blood testing, which is not as perfect, but still better than doing nothing. So the surveillance principle number three is the duration of surveillance should keep in mind the prolonged dormancy and patient's overall health life expectancy. I suggest at least 10 years for scans but as I made, made the case, maybe lifelong with at least annual LFTs. The frequency is uh, also, I think, important. It should mirror the risk of recurrence. The strategy that we use is high, for high-risk patients, patients with clinical, higher clinical stages, or let's say Castle Biosciences class two uh, gene expression profile. Those patients, we typically do every six-month scans for the first two, three years then once a year, and then at, after five years, actually, sometimes we have used scans every other year or so. As the time goes by, the risk diminishes, and we can reduce the frequency of surveillance. Now, very low-risk patients, again, for reasons we talked about, I discuss surveillance in all the patients for very low risk. We don't need to do it very frequently. Uh, we do it once a year and then cut it down to maybe even every other year after a five-year time point. Lastly, I wanna kind of uh, touch on, if we know that a person's risk is high enough, ideally we should be doing something proactively at that time, but we are not quite there yet. We do not have any treatments in the high-risk patients at this time. And there are a lot of trials going on, and I'll be honest, most of those trials, I don't think they are going to actually solve this problem. They are most, most of those are using drugs that have no proven benefit in ocular melanoma. Even for the biology of stage four disease, many of those drugs do not work for stage four disease. So if they do not work in stage four disease, why do we need to expose patients early on to those drugs? Why can't we just follow them closely at the very first chance of recurrence? That's when we know that we have a problem for sure that, that's when we go in full steam and try to find the best treatments for those patients. And I think that is the value of surveillance. If we find out about a problem, then we can um, direct all our energy towards that. So I'm hoping the systemic adjuvant therapy part will change. And I, I just wanna kind of argue that I think we need to test drugs in healthy patients who may never have a cancer coming back only when they have some proven efficacy, perhaps in stage four disease. So um, that's, that's, that's it, I'll stop right there. Thank you so much, let's give Dr. Bhatia a hand.
All right. So next up, we have Dr. Breach, Dr. Brechbiel, and she's going to talk yeah. to us about, okay, we've got all this news. Now what do we do with it when our brain goes a little crazy? <laughs> okay. Yes, this is working. Hi, I'm Dr. Julia Breckfield. I'm a clinical psychologist at UW, specifically at Fred Hutch Cancer Center. I also have worked at Harborview in rehab medicine and our diabetes clinic. So my area of expertise is really in folks living with different health conditions chronically and wanting them to live their best lives. Um, I think, I don't have the clicker. There we go. Um, right now, you all might be feeling some emotions. We just learned a ton, I learned new stuff even, about prognosis, about options, about surveillance. Um, my job today is just to normalize these emotions. As a clinical psychologist, yes, I diagnose mental health conditions, but in this case, with cancer, uh, all of these emotion reactions are normal. Everyone, to some degree, is going to feel sadness, depression, anxiety. The ones I specifically chose to list today are different emotions that people feel around grief of having gone through this, thinking about this, doing follow-ups, the impact it's had on our life. It's normal to feel grief that things are different than you anticipated it. The other thing that's really normal is that fear of recurrence. Those slides were great with the percentages, and we talked about reassurance, but sometimes our brain does not absorb reassurance. It's not very good at that. Our brains like to be on guard, and so it's very normal for people to experience fear of recurrence. Um, the data out there is a really wide variety um, of 20 to 99%. Folks with CNS cancer, head, neck, brain tumor, kind of my area of expertise as a psychologist, are on that higher end because the impact of recurrence is much higher than other types of cancer. So this is a screener that we often use in research, um, or I even use qualitatively with patients to say, what does it feel like when those annoying thoughts come into your brain, when you feel like you're playing whack-a-mole trying to keep the ideas or the white noise that um, the panel talked about before lunch, that white noise of cancer when it's droning in the background. Okay. So going back to like the idea of normalizing it, that fear is a really normal emotion. It is our body's way of keeping us safe, safe evolutionarily. Um, it turns on the part of our brain that is saying something's wrong. We need to do something about it. We need to fix it. Um, it's our brain, our body is taking in a lot of data, information today, physical sensations, and it needs to do something with that data. So the part of our brain that's responsible for that, very simply, is the amygdala. I think of it as our old reptilian brain. It's not very um, skilled. It like, is a computer that needs some updates. It is just really reactive. Um, I think of it as a smoke detector. I could be using my air fryer, and it could just go off because there's steam, or I took a hot shower, or I burned the bacon. Um, sometimes it's just really sensitive, and it goes off for no reason. Like right now, I often joke when I'm presenting that I can feel my body have a reaction. I'm not in danger. I'm just a little nervous, really excited to be here with you all, want to do a good job. But my brain is like, whoa, this is intense. Are you okay? Um, and it is. I have to remind my body that I am okay. You're not life-threatening. You're all really nice people. I've talked to several of you today. I don't think you mean me any ill or harm. And so how do I calm down my autonomic response system in this moment? How do I tell the reptilian part of my brain, hey, this is just some burnt bacon, nothing to worry about. This is just, like you said, the heartburn or indigestion. This isn't a met in my liver. It's not back. Or I just have a headache. Or my eye is just tired. Um, how do we challenge that part of our brain? How do we calm down our nervous system? Right now, I'm just practicing some breathing. Um, because I can't fight y'all. I can't run and I can't freeze. I wouldn't be able to do my job if I did any of those responses. So our last one is facing our fears. But that's really a lot easier for me to say than actually do. And so I remember when I first got my degree, every class had presentations, and I hated it. And now I love giving presentations, because it's like exposure therapy. It's facing that fear. 
And so there's a lot of ways to face our fears. So I'm going to try to keep an eye on time and go through these fairly quickly. I am happy to give out slides. So sometimes our ability to face our fear is just through positive experiences or stress inoculation. Like I said, I did a lot of presentations in school. I got really used to being stressed and being uncomfortable, and now I don't mind it. If anything, it's like a roller coaster. Some people like that adrenaline rush. Um, and so having positive experiences of being able to handle stress through validation, through peer support. I heard there's the Tuesday night groups. Um, in the group peer panel, they talked about the difference of positive support versus toxic positivity. They gave really good examples of people genuinely actually being there that you can actually share your true feelings and you don't have to worry about their emotional well-being or reaction. Um, and just being your authentic self, being able to have bad days, to have these negative emotions and not feel like it's a bad thing. Um, like it's not gonna cause your cancer to come back if you're actually gonna let yourself be sad about it. The other part is building your resilience. This can look like a lot of different things for different people of what makes you feel stronger and confident and builds your esteem. Um, I loved how, um, I don't know the term, I probably can't say it, the people who make the eye prosthetics. Um, that's a good way to build your self-esteem and your confidence and build it back up to feel like you are yourself again. Social support, you've all been building community here. It's been so wonderful to see you all building connections with each other, faith and um, support in that way. So the other piece that is a little trickier is this idea of post-traumatic growth, the idea of how do we grow after a trauma? How can we be stronger? How can we not just view it as a loss, but what have you gained from this experience? Is it community? Is it learning about yourself? Sometimes I have folks say, going through cancer while the hardest part is also made me realize what I actually wanna be doing what's actually important and is this opportunity to right the ship or redirect the way our life is going. The other piece is finding faith. And I don't only mean this in a spiritual sense, I also mean it as just a sense of comfort, a sense of meaning, of having a narrative or a reason why. Um, for some people, this is a moral compass. Sometimes it's legacy or the idea of generativity. So part of like my work as a psychologist is how many people have I helped? I can see a handful of people in a day or I can do a talk on Saturday when I could be at home and I can reach more people right now and help more people than just sitting in my office seeing everyone one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so finding your why is really helpful. I think I talk a little bit more about this in my other talk as well. The other piece that's really helpful when thinking about prognosis, fear of recurrence, how often do you wanna do your scans, building that plan with your doctors of what can I control? What is outside of my control? So things like exercise, diet, deciding what kind of scans or what kind of labs you want, that's within your control. Everything else is gonna be what it is and being okay to give some of the control to someone else like your team of saying, I'm doing my part, showing up to my appointments, my body's gonna do what it does, I can respond to it how I want. And being ready with a plan can be your other option of choosing whether or not you wanna be proactive or reactive. So that kind of brings me to the idea of coping style. Everyone's very different in their coping style. The way I often ask people their coping style is to think about going to the dentist. Are you someone who just doesn't make the appointment? Probably a little avoidant, that's okay. But you probably still make it when you, you really need to. You Maybe you'll go when your tooth hurts or your gums bleed in more than you know it should. Or maybe you go every three to six months. You like follow the rules and that makes you feel comfortable. And sometimes, maybe you're like me, you're friends with your dentist, you help the hygienist hold the suction, it, it's a good time, you have a blast with them um, because that makes you feel more comfortable. Like you get very involved. That's what we sometimes call like an approach oriented. That doing something, having that agency is really helpful for you. The last, I think this is the last piece, um, is cognitive reappraisal. So catching those thoughts, oh, 
if I don't do this, then my cancer is going to come back. Or I have um, the first quote is the patient who had lung cancer um, of saying, is this just a cough? Is it just bronchitis? And like try not to snowball. Oh, no, it's pneumonia. Oh, no, it's my cancer coming back and walking it back that whatever it is, we can treat it. I have this appointment, I have this next scan, or I just got these results that say it's okay. I'm just gonna put it to rest. I'm gonna let it fade to the background and not think about it. And then trying to pivot in another direction and say, nope, I'm gonna think about this instead. So the other piece is if you want help doing these things, if you feel like this is impossible to do alone or just with my peer support, or I don't wanna burden my peers or my family with this is talking to someone who's trained in it. And so two modalities that I find very helpful for the idea of this anxiety or fear of recurrence or progression are um, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT is pretty popular, you've probably seen it on the social medias. Um, ACT is more of a newer form, acceptance commitment therapy. It's not the idea of like accepting, oh, cancer. It's the idea of saying bad things are gonna happen and I'm gonna choose how I wanna respond to them. So first for cognitive behavioral therapy, it's really looking at this triangulation or cause and effect relationship between behaviors or physiological symptoms, what thoughts come up, and then how that impacts our feelings. And so we are gonna wanna change our thoughts and change our behaviors to improve our mood. So pretty linear in that way. Acceptance commitment therapy is a little like messier. It's a little less structured, um, more my style personally, um, where we're looking at a lot, like we're complex people. Um, so kind of going around, we call this a hexaflex. It's a really silly word. Um, there's a lot of different strategies that ACT offers. So one is being present. Instead of worrying about the future, we're gonna focus that we're here and now in our chairs listening to my voice, that we don't need to worry about the future or what comes next, or I'm not gonna check my watch, thinking about how many minutes I have left. Um, the next is knowing what our values are. What is our guiding purpose? How do we wanna spend our time? What do we wanna be thinking about? And then commitment is making commitments to make sure our actions and our thoughts align with those values. Down at the bottom, we have selfish concept. It's this idea of my energy, my body, my soul, who I am is different than the things that happen to me. Um, so kind of thinking of us as the sun in a solar system of problems and stressors orbiting around us, that we're still ourselves as these things happen around us. And then one way to help with that idea of self as concept is the idea of diffusion, of making our thoughts and feelings not so stuck to us. Kind of like getting like peanut butter out of hair. We wanna like unstick from those thoughts. And last is acceptance, being willing to have icky feelings basically. All right, I have some recommended readings. I love these books. Um, it's a combination of the two modalities. Mind Over Matter is kind of a workbook strategy. Man's Search for Meaning is excellent. It is a little sad and intense, so warning there if you have read it. Happiness Trap and um, Get Out of Your Own Mind and Into Your Life are both focused on acceptance commitment therapy. And then these are just some wonderful resources that I have learned about working in cancer populations. They're not specific. Uh, to ocular melanoma, um, but it's helpful to sometimes have people who are your peers in other ways. So be it around family planning, that could be an important value, um, getting help with that and the stress of that while having cancer, or if you are identifying as LGBTQ, there are some great organizations out there, and then there are also some general cancer um, resources. So like Cancer Lifeline, I know, offers, um, I want to say six sessions of just support and counseling for free. And then Team Survivor Northwest is specific to Seattle, but it's a really great group um, of women or people who identify as women getting out there and living their lives and like training for big hikes and things. I think they summited um, Mount St. Helen two years ago. All right. Okay. Excellent. Question. You guys, Thank that was you. wonderful. Let's give them a round of applause. All right, I have.
had some questions I wrote down, and I'm going to have to find them. Um, but for those of you who are in the audience, um, we don't have much by way of announcements between this session and the next one. So what I'm going to do is just give them a good 10 minutes of question and answer. So if you have questions, take a minute, write them down. Um, and then you do have a couple? Okay. Oh, okay, wonderful. So Wendy back here in the back, she will pick up your questions if you have them. And I'm going to find the ones I wrote down. Oh, they're on the back. can't blame everything on one eye, guys. <laughs> okay, so first question is kind of a clinical question. So I think this will go to both Dr. Bhatia and Dr. Stacy. And this is more of like the difference between a biopsy to treat the eye, right? We, um, or sorry, let's back up. You, you mentioned we don't typically do a diagnostic biopsy to then decide on how we're going to treat the eye, right? So then what's the difference then in kind of how it seems to go with metastatic disease if you're then sent to someone like Dr. Bhatia and they're like, oh, there's a spot on your liver. How, how do you kind of go about deciding when to biopsy, when to get confirmation that it is melanoma or, you know, whatever it may be? Yeah, I think I can take the liver biopsy question. So whenever we are thinking about treating somebody, we want to be sure that we are dealing with the right diagnosis. Also, if somebody develops metastatic disease, the prognosis is potentially you know, impacted in a very big way. And then we are talking about embarking on a path which will require a patient to get multiple therapies over the next several years. So the implications of uh, um, a, a potential metastases on both prognosis and therapy is so big that I want to be absolutely sure that I'm actually dealing with metastatic ocular melanoma. There are other things that can go to the liver. Colon cancer can go. Pancreatic cancer can go. If you don't treat the right cancer, we are not going to make much progress. So I want to be absolutely sure that we are dealing with the right cancer, and I would order a biopsy pretty much every single time. There are some situations where a biopsy may not be safe. Um, we can do some other fancy testing like a liquid biopsy, look at circulating tumor DNA, and do the mutational analyses and find out that it's the same profile as what you would expect with an ocular melanoma. Um, but I almost never treat anybody with metastatic disease without having you know, 99.99% confirmation that we are dealing with that disease. Okay, so let's, um, I guess I just am trying to paint a picture of uh, just maybe some of the things patients could expect if they do end up with spots on their liver. So is there a, a general pattern of, say, they see one spot on, a, you know, on an ultrasound or an MRI, is there a general pattern of waiting where you want to wait and see if it changes before you assume? Um, or are there certain things that you can see in imaging that kind of guarantee, ooh, this is, this is responding this way to imaging, therefore I have grounds to biopsy now as opposed to waiting you know, another three to six months to scan and, and kind of monitor? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's very relevant because when we order so many scans over so many years, some scans are going to show some finding, and we deal with this very practical question. And my approach generally is um, if there is something new uh, or potentially growing, we want to consider a biopsy, but if it is too small, like two, three millimeters, the biopsy is very challenging, and we are most likely going to subject somebody to an invasive procedure without getting the answer. So what is the utility of finding a two or three millimeter tumor in the liver? Um, not, not much, and the risk is very low too. So I can safely repeat an MRI in four or six months, um, and then when it gets bigger and safer to biopsy, we can do biopsy at that time and start our treatment full steam at that time without actually compromising the overall long-term outcomes. Okay, I think that's that's a wonderful answer to that question, and I am gonna blank on the question I just thought of as you were talking, but it's okay; it'll come back to me. Um, so another question around this is, you know, you you mentioned the double double exposure or the what is it called dual energy X-ray. Um, so the dual energy X-ray, I know that at least for the girls or the women in the the area, those of us who have you know the possibility that this cancer could end up in the breast tissue, is an, a chest X-ray adequate? 
for checking that area, or do you think there's grounds for you know checking? I just know I know at least a handful of, of of patients myself who are female and who have had breast metastases of uveal melanoma. So I guess my question is, does the chest X-ray or the CT scan of the chest pick up on that? Yeah, I I, I think for looking at lung images, there are all these different modalities. CT chest is more sensitive. It can detect things uh, which are much smaller than a chest x-ray. But in some of these situations, you don't want to, again, similar to the liver, there's no utility of finding a two or three millimeter lung lesion. It has to be big enough so we can biopsy and so on. So I think if you apply the same principles, um, you know, you don't lose that much by doing a chest x-ray. Now, the reason why we do a chest x-ray in ocular melanoma is because the probability of finding something in the lung without involving the liver is so low that most of our CT scans are probably going to be unnecessary radiation exposure. So I, I actually am fine with compromising with a slightly inferior test, not markedly inferior, um, as compared to a CT chest, but save on all the radiation exposure and hassle of getting a CT. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Um, can, can Wendy, can you grab her question? Um, I'll give you a minute because I'll ask a different question, Kenna. Uh, so let's just talk. You mentioned, um, especially I think between Dr. Stacy and Dr. Bhatia, you guys talked a lot about like, okay, we've got the prognosis and we've got kind of the weight of this prognosis on us psychologically. So when you guys are in clinic, you know, with your patients, do you see, um, do you see like a, a, I guess, a risk benefit psychologically to some patients over others dealing with that scanxiety? Like, it does it does it become super unbearable for some patients? And if so, like. What do you recommend doing? Yeah, well... Uh, I know, it's kind of a loaded question. I mean, it, it's a very worthwhile question because I, I don't know exactly how to advise patients on that question. And so when we're talking about a biopsy before treatment, when we're planning radiation in a biopsy or enucleation in a biopsy, we talk about a biopsy and what it provides us, um, but I, I will say we don't need this to treat. So is this information that you want? Because it is true that I have had patients who have obtained the biopsy and regretted having the information both ways. I've had people who have the high risk profile and they think, oh no, I'm, I'm living with this now, this high risk. And I've had patients who've had the low risk profile but developed metastatic disease and thought I should have never gotten the biopsy because I had this false sense of hope. Um, but I would say the alternative is is much more common where patients get the information and it's very beneficial to them. But it really depends on your ability to, um, to deal with that information. I think we all deal with that information differently and so we have to kind of help patients recognize, hey, this is information that you're gonna have. Do you actually want this information? I think most patients, at least when I have this discussion, do want it, but I think there are some who do not. No, I think that makes sense. And this kind of goes into yeah, what Dr. Breckbeal was going to say. I was going to jump in on this one. And this is where knowing yourself and not doubting your decision comes in. Because kind of what Dr. Stacey is mentioning is that after the biopsy is done, people may feel differently. And I really encourage my patients to remind themselves that you make the best decisions on what data you had in the moment and how you thought you would feel. And so not being hard on yourself for a decision you made because you are the expert. You are doing your best. Um, and sometimes we don't know how we'll feel because we've never done it before, and that's okay. Um, and just trusting yourself in that, that if you miss out on the biopsy and you wish you had it, that that is something you can we can grieve, that we can work on. And it also just sounds like if you did get it and you learn it's high risk or low risk and there's an emotional fallout, that's still something that you can overcome. Awesome. All right. So I know for the sake of time, uh, we're, we're running right into our two o'clock session. Uh, but there was one last question about radiation. And since I have very minimal break slides, we're just going to do this last question. So um, you mentioned the radiation exposure of the x-ray versus the CT. Do you happen to have an idea of, you know, maybe ballpark some numbers of how much more radiation do you get in a CT versus an x-ray? Yeah, I am not a physicist, so cannot uh, answer it definitively. But my understanding is CT scan is almost 100 times more radiation exposure, still safe, 
um, but 100 times more radiation than a chest X-ray. Now, if we do dual energy, because we are doing twice as much energy, so we probably make it 50-fold difference between the two. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.